Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The 1950s in Ireland were one of the worst decades since the Great Hunger of the 1840s. That's a strong claim, but the reality of life at the time bears this out. It's often called a lost decade, as the economy tanked and the Catholic Church, at the height of its power, dominated life. Young people, desperate to escape, began emigrating in numbers unseen in Ireland since the days of the Great Famine over a century earlier. Indeed, the scale of this emigration was staggering. Ireland lost nearly half a million people to emigration in the 1950s, a figure equivalent to 80% of all those born in the free state between 1931 and 1941. An entire generation were forced to seek a better life elsewhere. A lonely silence descended over many Irish communities. Now, unlike the famine emigrants a century earlier, who had largely gone to the US, in the 1950s, the vast majority of Irish emigrants went to Britain. However, the tens of thousands who arrived each year, many of whom went to London, found a city that was often bewildering, isolating and unwelcoming. The now notorious poster in rented accommodation that stated no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, embodied the racism they faced. Alongside this discrimination, those who moved to London in the 1950s experienced an enormous culture shock, particularly for those from remoter parts of the west of Ireland or Irish-speaking communities who didn't have English. Homesickness, loneliness and isolation led to high levels of alcoholism, which was exacerbated by their hard lives. However, theirs was not only a story of doom and gloom. The Irish in London were a tight-knit community and did what they could to help people adjust. And they were able to find work as post-World War II reconstruction was in full swing in Britain in the 1950s. 70 years have now passed since that generation left Ireland and sadly today they are fewer and fewer in number. However, in the late 1990s, author Catherine Dunn spent years interviewing 
that generation as they were nearing the end of their lives. They talked candidly to Catherine about their experiences and the stories they shared became the basis of her outstanding book and Unconsidered People, The Irish in London. A few weeks ago, Catherine joined me to talk about these stories she recorded in the late 90s and I have to say it was one of the most moving interviews I've done in quite some time. Often when discussing history, it's about people and places that are long gone. It can be a bit cold and unemotional. It can be hard to identify or relate to the subjects of the conversation. However, the people Catherine talks about in this podcast could be your parents or grandparents. They may well have lived very similar experiences. Catherine captures the isolation and loneliness, but also the hopes and dreams they had, as well as the efforts of the wider Irish community to help them adapt to their new lives in London. Just before you hear from Catherine, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Finn DeWire, and this is the Irish History Podcast. I have links to Catherine's book, An Unconsidered People, The Irish in London, in the show notes below. It's a great read. But now to start our conversation. I asked Catherine about Ireland of the 1950s and why so many people left. I think predominantly people left for economic reasons. This country was incredibly depressed and there was also an unwillingness to accept that the country was depressed. And I mean, De Valera would say things such as, oh, I don't know why people are emigrating. There is work to be had at home, every bit as plentiful and in such good conditions as people will find in Britain, which patently was not the truth. And Joe Lee, uh, writing about Ireland at that time, says that emigration actually worked as a kind of a safety valve. Because if those, let's say, let's just take the 50s for the moment, if those 500,000 plus people had not left this country in the 1950s, he says we, we would have moved towards some sort of social revolt because when those people went, it meant there was not the pressure of all of those people here looking for jobs. So it made life a little bit more tolerable for those who were left behind. So I suppose there was, in a way, a kind of a massive denial that this was what had to happen in order for the country to retain any kind of um, stability. And as I said, 80% chose the UK or chose Britain because there was that sense that it was closer to home and they could always come back and it wasn't as definite and as final as going to the United States. And let's not forget that in the 1980s, with more dismal economic circumstances, 200,000 people left this country. The height of it was in 1989 when 70,000 people left in one year. So you can see this generally accepted pattern, you know, is something that moves through all of the decades. Now, for men in particular, they viewed emigration to England as only a temporary measure, that they would save some money and then return home to Ireland. The reality was often very different. Catherine shared this story about a friend who had an encounter with a man who had left in the 1950s, thinking he would leave for only a few years. But this builder friend of mine who was in London in the 1980s and he had gone over just for a couple of years to get a few quid together to come back and start his own thing with a bit of luck here. And he was on a building site one day and the foreman was chatting to him and said, well, John, when are you you going home? What are your plans? And John said, oh, well, I'll stay a couple of years, you know, get a few quid together and then go home and try and set myself up. And the foreman nodded and he said, a couple of years. OK, and he pointed to a man in the corner who probably would have been in his 70s, who was sweeping up the debris on the building site. 
And he said to him, that's Michael over there. Michael is here 55 years and he thought he was going home after two as well. Women had a different experience of emigration to men. Their reasons for leaving Ireland was often rooted in a desire to escape the patriarchal society they faced at home. They just did not want what was on offer in Ireland. You know, a baby every year, dreadful economic circumstances, a, a society that was, from every objective um, assessment, ruled by the Catholic Church. And stepping out of line simply wasn't tolerated. And of course, then you had the other women who left for that uh, reason, which has been in the headlines so much in the last few years. They left because they were pregnant and shame drove them out of this country. So it was in a way in which I suppose similar to the way we probably tackled abortion afterwards, although taking the boat in the 1950s had a different resonance from taking the boat in more recent decades here. Taking the boat for women was to escape to to Britain to a better way of life. And if they were pregnant so that they could have their child in Britain, have it adopted and come home and maybe have nobody at home know any difference. So they would have been treated with a mixture of shame, denial and just blindness. Just as long as they're not here, we don't have to worry about them. Many Irish people, both men and women, faced a major culture shock when they arrived first. Ireland of the 1950s was a very different place to London. There was an enormous culture shock, let's say, men from the west of Ireland who would arrive in Britain. And uh, often men who went from from Connemara, from the Gaeltacht areas, didn't speak any English. So they had the double kind of culture shock of being somewhere where they weren't understood in all senses. Their language wasn't understood. Their culture wasn't understood. And also, if you think of the vastness of London from people who left from Roscommon, Leitrim, you know, very, very uh, isolated parts of rural Ireland to suddenly arrive in all of that chaos of trains and tubes and cars on the road and millions of people. So there was certainly there was certainly that culture shock. The other culture shock was particularly uh, for men, and this was something which came out in all of the interviews, because men were not as good at accessing any social supports that might have been there, say like the church or family. Women tended to gravitate towards those to kind of find a substitute for home. But the culture shock for the men was suddenly all of those family supports being taken away. And also, um, and this is something which has been verified by research in the British Medical Journal, a lot of those young men would have sought a kind of a temporary family in the pub, which is where the other, say, construction workers gathered in the 1950s. And the, the research shows that overwhelmingly those young men did not leave Ireland with a problem with alcohol. They developed one after they got there because the only place where there was a substitute for family was within that pub. People not greeting them on the street, you know, not having a community, not knowing other people. That was another shock. And there was also the, the peculiar thing where because they were white and many English speaking, the kind of blended in to the English population without being a, without being noticed as having different needs because of where they came from and what their backgrounds were. 
One of the first things these emigrants had to do was to find accommodation, but they were frequently met with racism. There were houses with the infamous no dogs, no blacks, no Irish posters in the window, and while these were not as prevalent as is often claimed, the racism behind them was very common. Accommodation was also very difficult. Now, I think sometimes maybe it's overemphasized about the, 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 the posters that went up saying no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. They were definitely there. And even if the posters themselves went there, there was an anti-Irish feeling in terms of seeking accommodation. Um, Freddie Boland, who was the Irish ambassador to London back in the 1950s, wrote back to De Valera and said, that there were men living in conditions that were absolutely appalling in London, in Kilburn and Cricklewood and places like that. But it was permitted or encouraged for them to stay in houses that belonged to men of good character, in other words, who were Catholic. And you would have 150 men sleeping among three houses. And what they did was it was called hot bedding. So they had different shifts. So when the night shift men got up to leave to go to work, the others got into bed to sleep, and so it went. Many, sadly, had to try and hide their Irishness in order to secure a house. One woman told me a story which was replicated many times about walking towards a flat which they were going to rent with herself and her husband. And he had told her to leave the talking to him because he had been in London a little bit longer, so the kind of West of Ireland edge was off his accent and he was able to pass, if you like. And she said to me that as they were approaching the, the landlady's door, they met a good friend of theirs who was working on the street. And the landlady had come out onto the step. And luckily, the man didn't greet them. He kind of copped at the last minute that something serious was going on. So they walked past him which I thought is a very sad metaphor. They had to literally you know, deny the fact that they were Irish in order to get accommodation. And also the rules around accommodation were incredibly strict. People would tell me about having a room, say a couple, a married couple, but it would be very strict. They'd have to be in at a certain time of night. They would have to book when they wanted a bath. And of course, the first, once the first baby came along, that was it the accommodation was no longer possible. Now, while Irish people faced racism, they themselves could often be very racist towards other minorities. And Irish children born to Irish mothers and black fathers often never met their grandparents back home. There was a lot of relationships and marriages between Afro-Caribbean men and Irish women. So there were a lot of children who were who were black. And though, if you had to keep a white baby secret, from your family in Mayo, well, you certainly had to keep babies of mixed race secret from your family, wherever you came from. So there were a lot of grandparents here who actually never even knew that, that they had grandchildren in Britain. Now, as we've seen so far, adjusting to life in London could be difficult. But the Irish had been in the city for generations and there was a huge network that did help people adjust to this different life. This Irish community had its own institutions to help people find their feet. I mean, Kilburn and Cricklewood were known as another Irish county because the concentration of Irish people there was so extraordinary. And there were also, you know, um, Irish centres then, which were, which were set up because 
of the amount of immigrants, Irish immigrants who are arriving there. And, and therefore, like the Irish Centre in Camden, for example, that set out then to, to help those who are newly arrived with accommodation, with, for example, social welfare entitlements, which they were entitled to because there had been a law passed in 1921 which entitled Irish people working in Britain to social welfare. But a lot of the social welfare staff would have been ignorant of that legislation. And so people would have felt that they weren't entitled to anything, which made the struggle when they got there in the early days, you know, even greater. So it was a, it was a huge settling in period. And many of them, because they would have had family there beforehand, they were the ones who, who did better. They didn't fall through the cracks like so many of the single, particularly single men who would have emigrated on their own. Central to this Irish community was a network of dance halls. Well, I mean, the dance halls were the major uh, source of all community. The, the, the Galtimore, for example, which uh, was the last remaining dance hall back when I was doing this research. All the others had gone, the Gary Owen, the Round Tower, all of those had gone. But all of those were hubs for Irish people, not only where they met prospective partners, but where you got a plumber or a carpenter or a builder or, you know, a taxi man, whatever. Huge communities. It was an enormous network. Now, I was intrigued by these dance halls. The last to close its doors was the Galti Moor, which operated until 2008. And Catherine shared her experience of visiting it in its final years. OK, well, they, first of all, they were huge places. And I spent a couple of evenings in the Galtimore. Uh, I went with uh, a friend of mine who was one of the who, one of the interviewees in the book. Um, we became very friendly, and she's thank goodness she's still with us. She's in her eighties, and the Galtimore was just her absolute delight. So I went with her on a couple of Friday and Saturday nights. So first of all, they were vast places, absolutely huge. And when we when we went. There's a big, huge ballroom, so you've, right? It was very basic, um, but it would be divided. It was divided into two parts. And the night that we were there, one of the nights that we were there, Declan Nerney was in one part, and the you know, older couples were waltzing to that music. And then behind the partition, Bagatelle was playing, and that was for the younger people. So sometimes the the sounds kind of came from one place to the other. So it could have been quite a noisy and quite a chaotic place. But they were jammed. I mean, they were absolutely jammed. And the bar, of course, did a thriving business. So, uh, and also, uh, by the way, and, and not just anecdotally, because I experienced it myself, they also watered the alcohol that they sold. So they made even more profit. But anyway, that's by the by. So it was just known as this great big meeting place for just for everybody, people from all over, Kilburn and Cricklewood and further afield came. And it was a great big event and people really dressed up. Now, remember, these people went in the 1950s. I started this research at the end of the 90s. You know, so we're talking 40 years later. So you had that generation who were probably the vast majority of the people who were there. So they would have been in kind of in their 50s and that the early 60s and that kind of thing. But there were also younger people there who had come to know it as a great place to meet up with others. So people introduced people to each other and people, there was different counties 
that met almost in different groupings. And that was also a source of some conflict because there were many counties for some reason best known to themselves that were warring with each other. So, you know, you'd have one county fighting with another county and the Black Mariah would arrive at some stage and everybody would be taken away by the police. It was routinely a fight, not all the time, but certainly on a regular basis. So there was dancing, there was drinking, there was talking, there were deals done. As it was mentioned earlier, people would find their carpenters and their plumbers and whatever there. They would recommend somebody to somebody else. So there were huge, big community hubs. And I mean, the nights that I was there, it, the, the ballroom was absolutely heaving with people. You couldn't have got any more people into the space. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Catholic Church was also important in operating some of these dance halls. A lot of the Irish clubs were attached to churches and men would drink there at weekends or even bring families at weekends. But there was always a bar and the bar would help to repair whatever was necessary, you know, with the church roof or whatever. But then the problem was when the whatever the problem was with the church had been fixed, those social clubs in the late 1950s, early 1960s, were closed. Now, this brought us on to the church itself. The overwhelming majority of Irish emigrants in the 1950s were Roman Catholics, and inevitably, the Catholic Church would play a central role in their lives. The experience of how it treated people was, unsurprisingly, mixed. It was indeed, and I mean, one of the churches that I visited was Quex Road, which was an enormous church. Something like, you know, something like the enormous churches we still see here that are now empty. But Quex Road in the 50s would have been absolutely bursting at the seams. And like that, as I mentioned earlier, for those who went to mass and a lot of men went to mass, but most women would have gone. It was just that that slight difference. It was yet another community hub. The clubs that I spoke about, um, which would also have formed part of that community, um, would have... um, also helped Irish people meet others from home, if you like, because they used to speak about home in two different ways. There was one woman put it to me that there was a heart home, which was Ireland, and a maid home, which was in in Britain. So there was a distinction between the two. So they could meet others from their heart home, 
if they went to these organizations that were um, run by the Catholic Church. So certainly on the positive side, great deal of community, great sense of belonging. A lot of the priests were wonderful. Eamon Casey, for example, was a fantastic um, champion of the Irish community in London in the 1960s in terms of accommodation. Another priest whom I interviewed called Father Seamus Fulham was another great influence. So on the one hand, the complex nature of this, on the one hand, all of that good work was being done. On the other hand, there was um, the, 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 the way in which mixed marriages were frowned upon if an Irish Catholic wanted to marry somebody that they had met in England, who was most likely Church of England or Presbyterian or whatever, that was not looked upon uh, favourably. And also don't forget, at the time, church would also have been complicit in paperless adoptions, where babies born out of wedlock to the women who had gone to Britain to have their babies, often priests and doctors and nurses were complicit in arranging adoptions for those babies with good Catholic families. Among the numerous instances of mistreatment at the hands of the church was one in recent enough times. I found this incident where Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, the Archbishop of Westminster, tried to close a homeless hostel particularly poignant. Um, There was a wonderful hostel there called the CHC, the Cricklewood Homeless Concern. The land was owned by the Catholic Church. Now, this was this hostel was, and when I say lifesaver, I'm not using the words lightly. This was a lifesaver for those Irish men in particular who had suffered from the uh, ravages of alcoholism, mental health difficulties and everything that's associated with it. And unfortunately, that generation of Irish people has the much higher rate of homelessness than other ethnic groups in, in Britain and mental health issues. But that hostel which stood on ground owned by the Catholic Church. Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, who was the cardinal in situ at the time, was determined to close it down because the land was very valuable and it was going to be sold for housing development. So there were huge protests during 2003. I took part in one sleep out uh, where a lot of um, homeless people were organised by the CHC and we took our sleeping bags and we slept out one night as close to Cardinal Murphy O'Connor's residence as we could to embarrass him. Um, so there were a lot, there was huge campaigns and lots of support there from a lot of um, MPs, for example, who would have stood up for the rights of these homeless uh, homeless men in particular. And the hostel was saved. I'm very happy to say there was a happy ending. It's now called Ashford Place and continues its wonderful work of, of outreach. So the relationship, as ever, was complex. Alcoholism was a well-documented and major problem for the Irish community, particularly those who had come in the 1950s. I asked Catherine if this originated in isolation and loneliness. It did, absolutely. And I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The reasons why people would have overindulged would have been because of loneliness um, and, and isolation. And, you know, many people um, spoke to me about, for, the, for example, if they were living in digs, um, well, you couldn't go back there. You know, you couldn't go back in the evening and, and, and sit around and, and, and enjoy looking at television or whatever in your digs. You know, you were only you back there maybe for your meal at some stage and either, well, if you went up to your room, that was it. But, you know, people didn't want those who were staying in digs at home like that. 
So they would inevitably seek solace in the pub. And um, I think I mentioned earlier that all of the research would show that particularly the young men who went to Britain in the 1950s did not arrive with alcohol problems, but they certainly developed problems with alcohol while they were, while they were there. Now, this problem was exacerbated by the fact that so many saw themselves as temporary emigrants, so they never wanted to regularise their presence in England and sought to cash paychecks in pubs, leading to circles of exploitation, abuse and alcoholism. They got paid by cheque. But they didn't want to be officially in in Britain because in their heads they were always coming home next year. So they couldn't cash the checks anywhere. So the landlords in the pubs in Kilburn would cash their checks. But the checks weren't cashed until midnight. So you arrived in on a Thursday or a Friday or whenever you got paid with your check. And you drank with your mates until midnight. And then you got your check cashed, but you got what you had had to drink taken out of it. So you got a vastly reduced amount and then you you repeated the same process the following week. Before we continue the conversation with Catherine, I have two important announcements. So in September, I'm starting a series on the Civil War with Dr Brian Hanley from the History Department in Trinity College, Dublin. And secondly, I'm organising a supporters trip to Wales to visit the stunning Conway Castle. Now, both of these are exclusively available to supporters of the show on Patreon or Acast Plus. Their support is, after all, the backbone of the show. But if you enjoy the podcast and would like to join me on that trip to Wales and get that Civil War series along with hours of additional content, early access to the show and ad-free episodes, you can become a member today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. There's links in the show notes below. It's a really easy process. You just go to patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast and take it from there. Hopefully you'll be able to join me on that trip to Wales. It's going to be a really great event. We're going to the most stunning of castles. That's Conway Castle. And you'll get all the other exclusive features while helping me to produce the podcast. That address one more time is patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You'll find it in the show notes below. Now to return to the story of the London Irish. The onset of the Troubles in the north of Ireland led to a sharp rise in anti-Irish racism across Britain. The conflict would last nearly three decades and it would prove to be an extremely difficult experience for the Irish in London. Catherine explains what it was like. That was very difficult. Universally, that was very difficult. Uh, All of the people I interviewed would have said the same thing. Um, First of all, there was um, all of them had grown very surprised at the la- at the the ignorance of the general UK, uh, British population, the man on the street, if you like, the mythical man on the street, when you absolutely nothing about the north of Ireland or its relationship with the rest of Britain. So there was that for a start. So there was complete incomprehension as to why this was happening, um, and obviously um, those of the, of the Irish community board bore the brunt of that, uh, bore the brunt of that ignorance and then latent racism, which very much came to the surface during those years, the 80s. And some people told me about speaking across the garden fence, you know, to neighbours that they would have been, that they would have had for 20 years and be told, why don't you go back where you came from? A lot of them then have said they were very careful about not opening their mouths. Uh, I worked in London for a couple of summers during the 1970s while I was at university. And I, I learned very quickly to keep my mouth shut. 
and I didn't open my mouth on the on the the tube or the train if I was trying. We just understood implicitly that that we didn't. Um, we were there when some of the bombs went off in London, and you know you just you did not advertise the fact that you were Irish. Um, and then Tony Marr in particular speaks about um, where he would try. He said the embarrassment with it, with him with his neighbours, the embarrassment was was equal on both sides. He was embarrassed at being Irish. They were embarrassed at asking questions about what was happening in the north. But his attitude about it was that when he came home to Kildare, he said his his family in Kildare didn't want to talk about the north either. He said, oh, you know, that's nothing to do with us. You know, leave that alone. So it definitely, it changed. It changed the attitudes where people lived and also where they worked. And um, Kevin Casey, a man I mentioned earlier, he was working in, in a, on a factory floor somewhere and somebody called him Paddy and had some disparaging comment to make. And Kevin took him on and he challenged that racism. But most people found it very hard to challenge, particularly if it was with neighbours that they had known or workmates, people that they had a, you know, a good relationship with. So it made it very difficult. It made it very uncomfortable. It made the Irish community go very quiet for a long period of time. The difficult experiences many faced in England led to a romanticisation of life back home in Ireland. Catherine now explains this, how it was frequently baseless and that it only enhanced the sense of homesickness and loneliness. One of the problems then which happened when, you know, you get these people who were, you know, feeling very isolated, feeling very lonely, feeling stuck where they were without the option to go anywhere else. And then in those kind of pub conversations, you'd find developing the kind of mythology about Ireland. You know, that everything in Ireland was wonderful, which made the sense of isolation even greater. I mean, I remember sitting in an Irish club in Edgware, and it was mostly Mayo people who were there on that day. And just listening to the conversations, I did an awful lot of listening. You'd never believe it with the way I'm talking now, but I did a lot of listening, just getting people to tell me their stories. And there was this conversation going on about how all of the taxation system in Ireland was so fair and that nobody was ever dealt dealt a bad hand by the revenue. Whereas you look at Maggie Thatcher's poll tax and I'm listening to this going, hang on a second, the picture of Ireland that was emerging from these conversations was certainly not the Ireland that I grew up in or the Ireland that I knew. And, and it became fueled then by alcohol and fueled by all of those people getting together with the same feeling of socialized isolation and loneliness and bitterness about Ireland in one sense, but at the same time looking back on it as Mecca. And all they wanted to do when they retired then was get back to Ireland. The desire to return home differed between men and women, but even for those who did make it back, the reality they found back in Ireland was very different than the image they had in their heads. Women in particular had their children and grandchildren there who had no interest in coming back to Ireland. They did not want to return. A lot of the men still held on to the dream that this is where they wanted to come back to. And unfortunately for many of them, when they did return, if they could afford it, there was a it was they would have encountered some begrudgery um, because they had now bought a house somewhere now that somebody that wasn't available to somebody else. 
and, and a, a lot of them were caught. It didn't work out because if you come home every two weeks and you're buying drinks for everybody right, left and centre, you're hail fellow well met. You're very welcome. If you come home to stay, you're not going to have people flooding to see you or meet you. You know, you're on your own. So many of them had to go back and they suffered a kind of a double loss, having sold their home in Britain and then come to live in Ireland and had to sell up here and go back. So for so many of them, it wasn't what they dreamt it was going to be. It didn't work out. They didn't get the Cade Mila Falta that they expected. And yes, I think a lot of them felt rudderless. Now, Catherine interviewed many of the 1950s emigrants as they neared the end of their lives. I asked Catherine how they saw Ireland at this point. She began by telling me about a bitterness that could linger with family members at home. Well, I think there were, there were, there were again, very complex feelings about this. If you look at the those who left, automatically means that there were some in the family who stayed at home. And there was equal degrees of bitterness on both sides, on both sides, because those who, who had been left at home felt that they had been unfairly left with the burden, let's say, of dealing with ill and ageing parents, whereas their brother or sister had got away scot-free. So that's on the personal level. On the state level, um, I remember after the book was published, uh, getting some very, very poignant uh, letters from people who were asking that could they not just have free travel when they came back to Ireland, when they were over 65, could they not just qualify for free travel? And when you look on the economics of this, and one of the, one of the statistics that always stands out for me, um, in 1961, the education budget for this state was £13.5 million. Pounds. Right, that's the entire education budget that the state had to spend. The value of the emigrant remittances, as they were called, and again, most of them from Britain, was the same amount. So they basically educated a generation. And I feel for them and they feel for themselves that that has never been properly acknowledged. And that's why I called the book An Unconsidered People. Yes, we remember them. Yes, we know that they were there, but we haven't considered their needs and we certainly haven't considered the contribution that they made. They laid the foundation for the so-called Celtic Tiger. It's not their fault we blew it. And if you look at those emigrant remittances, I think we're the only country that actually has that on the balance sheet, whether it was an actual source of income for the state, that it's actually recorded that this is the money that came from abroad. But that's only the money that we can trace. Money came home in any... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Envelopes wrapped up in newspapers, in birthday cards, sent back with neighbours. So I, I would think that there's an awful lot more money that came from those emigrants that hasn't been recorded or acknowledged. So I understand their bitterness. And it, it was it, it was quoted in the Doyle, actually, that those returning emigrants from Britain, despite all of that contribution, they had no greater rights than any other EU citizen returning to settle in Ireland. And that's something 
that really, really rankles. To enter discussion, I asked Catherine about the second generation, the children of people born to Irish emigrants in England and how they identified. Did they see themselves as Irish or British? There's a kind of a dividing line between the first and the second generation Irish. Second generation Irish, uh, those children who were born either to one or two Irish parents, that the families tended to divide very neatly down the middle. And some of the kids would be mad about Ireland and would identify as Irish. And the other half would say, no, we're English. This is where we were born and this is our football team. And this is where, you know, we live in Brent or we live in Edgware or we're from wherever and we're English. And okay, they would acknowledge that they had an Irish heritage, but it didn't mean a whole lot to them. You can find Catherine's book and Unconsidered People, The Irish in London, in the links in the show notes below. It's a really great read and it's really accessible, based around some of the stories she shared in this podcast. As I say, there's links in the show notes below. Don't forget if you want to get that upcoming exclusive series on the Irish Civil War, join me on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast to get that and hours of exclusive content as well as ad-free episodes and early access to each show. Until next time, Sloan.